Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big, you know, the handsome one that stands right between Billy Sheen and Paul Gilbert. Yeah, that's me. And I'm completely focused on metal. Hey, Metalheads, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to another week of Focus on Metal. So this week, we are back at it again with yet another returning guest. In this case, it is from the Eric Martin Band and best known from Mr. Big. That's right, Eric Martin. So for the next two weeks, Richie will be having a discussion with Eric, mostly about the uh, the Lean In album from Mr. Big, which is, uh, yep, 30 years old this year. That's right. That one came out on March 26th, uh, 1991. Those of you listening in Europe, it was April 16th of 1991. So, yep, that's the uh, that's the agenda this week as uh, Richie sits down and chats with Eric. And, uh, you know, it's kind of the usual, about a little over an hour of audio, but we just decided that uh, this time we would give it to you in a couple of bite-sized chunks instead of one large-ass hour-and-plus episode. Crazy to think that... Uh, you know, the Black Album is 30 years old this year as well. So both these albums coming out the same year, it's uh, a little bit uh, a little bit of a mind fuck. And hopefully in the next few weeks, Richie and I will actually get together back here in the studio and do a bit of a discussion on the Black Album. And uh, hopefully we can kind of get that together. I don't know. Life's pretty busy, but uh, we're shooting for that as uh, something on the agenda in the next few coming weeks. Also, in the next few weeks, we are hoping that we are going to get our buddy Brian Heaton on here to talk about the latest book that he's taken part in called Building an Empire, The Story of Queensryche. That sucker is due out next month, and uh, actually, Brian has been uh, kind enough to provide me with an advanced copy of that. I've been starting to read that, and it's actually really good. For those of you that are longtime Queensryche fans, this is going to get into all the details about how everything went down from the beginning, even before the beginning. So good stuff. And again, be on the lookout. So hopefully we'll be chatting with Brian all about that one. But like I said, this week, next week, talking to Eric Martin, Richie caught up with him on the road as he's doing some solo acoustic stuff and had a... uh, Kind of the usual Eric Martin sort of conversation where they are just all over the planet and back again. So hang on because it's going to be an interesting ride as uh, we begin our conversation with Richie and Eric Martin. Hey, how you doing, Richie? I'm good. So where are you? On the East Coast? I'm in, uh, where are you, in Ireland? No, no, I'm in, uh, just outside of Boston. Oh, okay. Yeah, seems like you got a little accent there. Yeah. Uh, I'm in North Carolina, actually. Okay. I'm on the road. You're on the How are the shows going? Is it easy to get back into it? Oh, um, yeah. It's a PC case. Is it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you mean for me as a performer or just the people in general? Um, you, as a, you as a performer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like going out of bed, man. It's not, not a big deal. <laughs> I, I, I'm i loving it, actually. I love it. <laughs> I've been sitting on the fucking couch for like... Uh, Two years practically, so I, I'm, I'm loving, I'm loving being out on the road. Plus, you know, I'm hanging out. I'm, I'm playing acoustic shows, so it's a lot easier. 
you know, um, the acoustic stuff. So I, when I'm playing with Mr. Big or I'm playing with a, a rock band that I put together, uh, it's harder because, you know, there's a lot of songs to go through, a lot of Mr. Big songs. And, and when I play um, with this guy, PJ Farley and Steve Brown, they're, they, they come from an American rock band from the 90s called Trickster. Yeah, I know so Steve. They, I know, I've had him on the yeah. show before. What's happening? This is Steve Brown from Trickster, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. He's a little hyper, isn't he? Yeah, he's an awesome guy. Like he and he feel like he's done. Uh, all right, enough of him. I can't. That's enough. I, I can't. No, we we mentioned Steve Brown. That's great. He's an awesome guitar player. He's hyper as hell. We can't talk about him anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't give him press time. I just. I won't. So um. <laughs> <laughs> we just got, I have a, I, I'm, I'm going to be all over the place in this interview. It's just the way it is. But um, I have a, uh, like a, a message a thread that I, uh, with, with, with Steve and PJ and uh, our friend uh, who also plays with us, Joey Casada on drums. He, who is, he was in this band ZO2 back in the day. Great drummer and author. And uh, Chris um, Jericho, uh, you know, the champ, the champion wrestler. Uh-huh. And uh, so we all, <laughs> all morning long, we've just been busting each other's balls. I mean, I swear to God. So first they send a picture of the marquee of the club that I'm playing tonight. And it says, it says on the marquee, to be with you. And then it says, Eric Martin from Mr. Big. You know, I don't know if it's his last chance to see him or not, but it just seems, I mean, whatever gets, here, two things, whatever gets bodies in the club, that's okay, do it. But then it looks a little slightly desperate, you know, I don't know, I just found that kind of funny, but I was, uh, the promoter put it up, he's had it up for a month, I'm like, oh, fuck, what what am I going to do? It's in his hands, you know. So I got my balls handed to me this morning from all the guys. And then uh, Steve just sent this video of him. He looks like he's waking up and his hair is all a mess. And it's really a big close-up of him. He just looks like a, like, he just looks like a crack addict, actually. He just looks terrible. And he's like kind of busting my balls and busting Chris's balls and everybody. And so everybody starts ragging on him. So, you know, that's how it is with guys. You know, the minute... So I, I was getting my balls busted for for a few minutes, and then, man, the bus balls corner went right to Steve. And so I, I, just put up a, I just put up a picture of Nick Nolte's arrest picture. Oh, no. I, you know, I, 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 so, you know, it just keeps going. And then, I, and then I felt bad for Steve, so I found a picture of uh, PJ with Trickster wearing way too much eyeliner. Like, just, I mean, <laughs> way more than D. Snyder looked on his album covers, right? And I put it, I put it up and I put it, I, I go, I go, way too much eyeshadow. And he said, he writes back and he goes, uh, it's eyeliner. I, eyeshadow is way too much, way too traumatic. Anyways. <laughs> It was hilarious. I know I'm talking shit out of school, but, <laughs> but Joey Casada better watch his back as he's next. 
Eric, when is the last time you did a live show and didn't play to be with you in it? Uh, I, uh, I mean, I can kind of remember. I was definitely... Uh, when I used to play it, even in um, my solo stuff, once in a while, I had really... I brought it out once in a while. I would say probably 85. <laughs> okay, so that's, it's one of these... I know you have to play it, but uh, I thought you might have done the odd show here or there where you can yeah. li- leave it out. Well, one time I was kind of pissed. One time, pissed off. Um, it wasn't pissed off. I, I'll tell you exactly when it was. It was, uh, it was about five years ago, and I was at Hellfest with, um, with Mr. Big. And I'd already had like a really bad experience the couple of nights before where um, I, I <laughs> it's a long story. I don't know. I don't know if we have a long, a long time to do it, but I had totally taken the piss out of myself. And I know every time I tell the story, a couple of days later, I go, ah, shit, why did I talk too much about that? But <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to tell you. So Go on. I was in, uh, it was in, uh, it doesn't matter. It, but it was at a, it was a, Mr. Big had played a, a gig right before Hellfest. I don't remember where it was exactly, but it was in Europe. And it was at a place called the Wigwam Club. Right? And it was a gigantic place, the Wigwam Club. And it looked and felt like an American Indian sweat lodge. It had kind of teepees and Indian kind of, the uh, artwork on the on the walls, but it was really sweaty hot in there. Uh-huh. And so after the show, uh, me and the, me and the crew, we had a day off. Me and the crew, we were like dancing and having a good old time because it was like an after hour show as well. But it was really sweaty and, and all the crap that the crowd, uh, our crowd, had left on the floor, so it was all slippery and everything. So I'm dancing around and. Uh, I slipped and I broke my wrist, right? Uh-huh. So I was already in a bad mood as it is, had a broken wrist, cast, go to Hellfest, and I'm looking at the crowd and we're playing Addicted at Rush and, and Billy. You know, we also played uh, Billy Sheehan's song, uh, Shy Boy, that he did with David Lee Ross. So, you know, it's a heavy fest. So we're playing all this rock stuff. And then I see Paul with the acoustic guitar and I'm like no way man no way <laughs> uh, this crowd's gonna kill us if you bring out I gave my love a cherry aka to be with you you can't you, it's only a kill here and Billy kept saying hey man it's our our biggest hit dude we gotta play it I'm like nope we're not doing it and I was in I was in meds had a broken wrist and I'm like nope we're not doing it so we didn't do it at Hellfest and so we're backstage and we're doing like a little meeting. Naturally, the headliner, which was, you know, it was Hellfest. So, God, could have been, I think it was Priest. And uh, I saw this guy. I'm not bullshitting at all. I'm not making it up to, you know, or embellish the story to make it better. I swear to God, this happened. So, this guy is in line waiting to meet Rob Halford, and he's got a helmet, like a little plastic helmet on with horns on it right uh-huh. looking way more metal and I didn't embellish if I said he had tears in his eyes but he didn't have tears he, but he did he saw me and he goes hey 
how come you didn't play to be with you? It was the most, it was the surreal moment. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, yeah, ever since then, I've sucked up the pride. I mean, I, I love to be with you, it's, and I love singing it. It's not, I mean, if I died tomorrow and people only remembered me from to be, for to be with you, so I, I, I go with that. Yeah. I'm, I'm proud of it. Yeah. But absolutely, absolutely, yeah. But, but, uh, if I ever get in a bad mood and think that no one's going to give a shit about to be with you, I'm wrong. <laughs> well, Eric, when is the last time you listened to Lean Into It? The whole album? Oh, the whole album. Yeah. Oh, it's been years. years. Okay. Like, you mean back to back? Yeah, like you if know? you just, you, do you listen to, do you actually sit down and listen to old albums that you did at all? I did. I mean, believe it or not, I was on the airplane uh, last night from San Francisco, and I was listening to uh, a song that we it was that I that I play live acoustic. It's a song called Fragile. That I, I love that song. I wrote it right, but uh, I realized when I was listening to it. I go, oh my god, I'm singing the wrong words, my own words. <laughs> and and then I then I went, and after I listened to it, and I kind of, you know, jotted it down mentally. I went, man, I got to start listening to some other material. It's ironic, it's ironic that you bring it up or you brought it up because I thought about that same thing this morning when I woke up. I'm like, I got to listen to some other songs because I might be singing the wrong words. Sometimes I look at the audience. And they're singing back at me, and I'm going, they're singing the wrong words. I am. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I have you on to talk mostly about Lean Into It, because it's the 30th anniversary edition that just got released. And yeah. one of the things that I, I noticed about that album compared <laughs> to the first one is there's more outside songwriters on Lean Into It. I think Jonathan Cain had a co-write on the first one. And you guys wrote everything else. And yeah. I'm wondering, was that something that the label pushed on you? Or was that something that you wanted? You just wanted to see what it was like to write with other people? No, the, the label didn't push at all, ever. Well, not ever, but after To Be With You was a gigantic hit. That's when the label pushed every album after Lean Into It. Give me that next To Be With You. Ironically, you know? mm -hmm. yeah, no, they never pushed at all. They were encouraged. Yeah, they loved all the songs that we presented to them. We we gave them about fifteen, almost twenty songs. But um, so <clears throat> on that first album, uh, and it says Jonathan Kane on it. So I, uh, Mr. Big was managed by Herbie Herbert, who managed Journey, and he managed me for like a good twenty years. Or 15 years before Mr. Big, right? So uh -huh. when when Billy Sheehan and I got together to start Mr. Big, you know, I said, "Hey, I have a I have a really high powered manager, and I also have connections with Kevin Elson, who produced all the really good Journey albums." And Billy was like, "Wow, that's amazing." Maybe he maybe he already knew that. Maybe it's like he was getting you know three for the price of one who knows right yeah but um so through journey 
or Herbie, I met Jonathan. And Jonathan was kind of a neighbor. And uh, I live uh, in Northern California. He was a neighbor. And we hung out a lot. And we, But I, when I met him, I was doing demos for him. Like, he's a you know, songwriter as well, writes for other people. And so, you know, he'd throw me a hundred bucks or something or free. <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of frees. Yeah. <laughs> so I went and I, and I did all these demos for him, with him. And then it was weird because, well, no, it wasn't weird. I went like, since I'm, I'm doing all this stuff, you know, my little, my little, uh, I don't know how old I was back then. Maybe my 25, no, I was older than 25. And my 30 year old pea brain went, Hey, we should write a song, right? In lieu of pay. <laughs> so uh, we did. We we wrote that How Can You Do What You Do song. But through Jonathan, I met a songwriter that he was working with in my... I live in Marin, Marin County, which is in uh, maybe 20 miles from the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. Anyway, um, he introduced me to Andre Pessis who he was writing with. And I met Andre and we hit it off so great. And to this day, I mean, we've written easily 200 songs together. We've written a lot of Mr. Big songs over the years. But so I, when I got together with him, I was, this was prior to Mr. Big. Um, you know, I, when I wrote, how can you do what you do? I mean, I, I wrote it way prior to Mr. Big. It wasn't, it was just a rock song that we were going to write, right? Uh-huh. So I wrote, so I, when I was with Andre, we had written a few songs. Uh, I think we wrote Just Take My Heart, which was on the Lean Into It album. Um, maybe for my solo record. I don't know. I wrote it on piano, you know, and I was writing a lot of piano kind of stuff, rock and R&B kind of music. I was on Capitol Records at the time. So, so that was that. And then all of a sudden we started writing and writing. And then when Mr. Big happened, uh, I don't know why we didn't. Let me, let me just bounce. I'm bouncing all around with the chronological history. The Jonathan Cain thing was when I met uh, Paul and Billy, I said, I have this song uh, called How Can You Do What You Do? And I go, oh, this is great. And I go, and it's all Jonathan Cain's on it too. And I go, oh, yeah, that's cool. But it was mainly supposed to be just the guys, Billy Pat, Paul, and myself, just writing. And they didn't want, you know, they didn't want any of the R&B stuff. They didn't want any of that. Maybe maybe a little blues here and there, but it was just going to be a four in the floor, four in the floor uh, rock and roll album. Yeah. So on the second album, when uh, Paul Gilbert wrote Green Kindred Sixties Mind, it was like, oh, it's carte blanche now, man. It's out now. It's, it's a, it's as Ted Nugent would say, it's a free for all, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's when I introduced all this music that I'd written with Andre Pessis. So I wrote with Andre, and then uh, and and maybe I I don't think it was the record company. I really don't. I well, it could have been, but I didn't have any contact with it. But um, somebody suggested me writing with other people because I'm I'm really good at writing with these songwriter fellows, right? And so they turned me on to this guy uh, Jim Valance, uh, my publishing company did. Jim Valance, who wrote 
all those Brian Adams hits with Brian Adams, Cuts Like a Knife. Yeah. And just, you name it, Jim Balance is on it. He's like, you know, he's, he's Bernie Talbot. You know, he's, he's Jim Balance, for God's sake. So I went to Canada and I wrote a song called Never Say Never. And uh, ironically, uh, he had just written Love in an Elevator with Aerosmith. So <laughs> when I listened to Never Say Never, and you know what? Him and I both came up with that. But I'm like, maybe more him because it sounds like Love in an Elevator. But anyway, um, so yeah, Andre and then um, Jim Valance, and I don't remember right with any other people. Maybe there's other people on there. Um, uh, Eric, how how do you know it's going to work with an outside songwriter? Like, what what are you bringing the outside songwriter in to do that you can't do? It, it, I wasn't okay. I'm not a hit maker. Like, I'd lean into it. I I, I didn't. Okay, here here it is. Two two answers. Logistically, I lived in San Francisco. Those three guys lived in L.A. So I was driving back and forth constantly for <clears throat> rehearsal, uh, recording studio, uh, all those showcases we did. Um, rehe- yeah, rehearsal for the tour, uh, staying in hotels and all that stuff. So. I, I I really enjoyed being at home, you know, oh. on my on my time off. And Andre is a neighbor, you know. He lives like a, a county over, you know. Anyway, that's one answer. Second answer is that I had written with Paul on that first album, and I really enjoyed it. And I love writing with Paul. First of all, when I brought Andre in, he's part of the team. He's like the fifth Beatle kind of because it's like when I wrote with Andre we wrote a couple songs like just just take my heart uh, just him and I but on like Daddy Brother and Alive and Chicken him and I and the band wrote it was just like when I got the material from the band I thought it was okay I thought I thought in a way maybe at the time that every al- every label that I had been on prior to Mr. Big had dropped me after like the first album or second album, you know, like give me the hits and I'm like, going, oh shit, what, what? I just want what happened to be just to be in a rock band and you do an album and then you have kind of a long career and then one day you get on the radio, you know, somebody somebody to believe in you. That's what I was hoping Atlantic would do, you know, and um, <clears throat> I didn't think about writing hits or anything like that. I just wanted to write a really good song and. I Paul was writing these great riffs, and I was writing these, you know, good music to to accompany it, the melodies and all that. But lyrically, I just didn't feel I I needed a muse in a way. I needed somebody to like decipher all the fucking bullshit that comes out of my mouth. Huh. And Paul and Billy and Pat weren't the guys to do it. I didn't write lyrics with those guys. I wrote music. So when I wrote with Andre, we just sat on a porch like a couple old guys in rocking chairs and just uh, told corny jokes, uh, talked about religion and satire and what was in the news and all the movies we had seen and all the books we had read. And we just, you know, shot the shit for hours. And then while I'm holding an acoustic guitar, 
And then we just clicked. And we just were, we didn't pump them out. I mean, we took a week or two to write a song, but I just felt connected and comfortable to write uh, songs with Andre. Uh, not to take anything away from Billy, Pat, or Paul. I've written great songs with them as well, but I just felt like I had uh, an extension of myself with Andre. Mm. Eric, you mentioned lyric writing. Did that there. answer your goddamn question? Very much so. Uh, <laughs> you, you mentioned you mentioned there, Eric, lyric writing, and you did a ton of shows at Rush. And I'm curious, did you ever get a chance to sit down with Neil Peart and talk about writing lyrics with him? You know what, uh, Richie, I got to tell you something. So we're on, you know, Rush loved us. I mean, they took us on the road on the Presto tour and Roll the Bones. So this one time, I, I don't want to get into the really long ass story of it, but this one time I rode on the bus with Rush. Uh, I don't remember where we were, but it was a hundred miles to Denver. Or not, not, went from Denver to uh whatever a hundred miles is, you know? Oh. And uh and the and the four of us with their um lighting designer, Howard Underlighter, he was on the bus too. And we just shot the shit, we drank champagne, we told stories, it was fun, fun, fun. And it was mainly Howard, me, Alex and Getty. And once in a while I'd see Neil pop out of his uh of the stateroom or the bunk that he was in on the tour bus and we'd stop and he'd have a smoke and he'd come back in and I'd saw him a little bit. So one time he was doing that and I just kind of stopped him and I told him how much I admired his music and his drumming and told him about all the crazy folks that I see in the parking lot before, you know, like I, I used to hang out with all these Rush fans in the parking lot because our tour bus would park out in the par parking lot. And their tour buses and trucks would park backstage because oh. there was no room for us. So we'd park right in the middle of all the, the rush heads, you know? <laughs> so when we'd get out of the bus, they'd be barbecuing and, you know, all the, uh, the rush album covers turned into flags on their RVs. And, you know, it was like a flea market, man. It was, it was pretty cool, actually. It's horrible. And I'd be talking to these three or four guys uh, who are still friends of mine today, uh, two guys, Steve and Derek, they're talking to me and we're just shooting the shit and, and all of a sudden the Rush tour bus rolls in and they disappear like it was a Bugs Bunny cartoon. You know, they're like, boom! <laughs> right? Yeah. And like, I'm, I'm, they're leaving me hanging. I'm hanging, you know, over like some, uh, you know, barbecue pit, right? Holding a hot dog. And these, these guys are running after the bus, and I used to call them bus chasers, right? Yeah. And so I'm telling Neil this story, and he's laughing, and that's kind of, kind of my end to, I didn't talk lyrics, but I just talked to him for a good 15, 20 minutes. And I got to tell you, Richie, one of the sweetest guys in the whole wide world, but one of the smartest intellectual that's oh yeah, oxymoron, oxymoron right there. But one of the most intellectual people I've ever talked to in my life, and how I felt after the fifteen-minute conversation, I felt like an ignoramus. <laughs> okay, and like you're telling me, hey, you should you should talk to him about lyrics, dude. I couldn't even 
form a sentence to to, to compliment this dude. You know, he was so <laughs> he was so smart. He's so smart. But like, um, when I one time I brought Derek and Steve back. Um, I go ahead. You know, Rush was doing a sound check. And I go, hey guys, I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm going to bring you back. And I gave him laminates, and they were like stone cold, freak out, right? And I go, don't, do not air drum. I know you want to, but you're going to embarrass the fuck out of me. Don't do it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so <laughs> I hope they hear this because the, because the story has to be told. Anyway, so I brought him back, and. Uh, they're trying to keep it cool as best as they can, right? And then Neil uh, plays, you, you know, he's checking his drum set and he's got that drum set where it's a full kit and then there's a smaller kit behind him that's on, on a revolving sort of lazy Susan kind of stage, right? Yeah. And it, it spins around and while it's spinning around, he he's looking at me and he kind of gives me a, like, sup, how you doing? I don't think it was a sup. It was more like, you know, to me, it was a sup. Anyway, uh, and these two guys freeze. I, 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 I was looking down. I, 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 I thought I saw a puddle. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe it was just ice melting. I don't know. But anyway, uh, I don't know why I mentioned that story, but I remember Neil saying, are those the bus chasers? After those two guys left. And I go, yup. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Cute story I've never told before. So. <laughs> Did you get? To and you see- know what? You know what? It was freaking awesome. What? They live. What? I think they both live outside of Boston. Okay. <laughs> oh, dude, that is uh, God. That would be so amazing if you if they they heard this. Oh my God! It's great. <laughs> so, Eric, you mentioned like back then you know you did one record two records and you didn't know whether you know your the label would keep you and or drop you when you were doing lean into it i don't think that it sold as many probably as you guys thought it would um were you feeling any pressure at all then that the second album had to be really really good like what did you want to change on the second one that you felt you couldn't you did wrong on the first one no i don't think we thought about Look, I knew in my heart, those other three guys, they didn't, they didn't care. And I didn't really care either about, I did care about authority telling me what to do. I'm a songwriter. I'm a singer. I, I hate, I don't mind critique kind of stuff like, oh, you, like even Billy Sheen used to look at me sometimes before I went on stage and go, uh, are you going to wear that? Right. <laughs> and, I go, and I go, oh fuck, man! I feel so stupid. But he's, he was—he's right. He's right, and he's in my band, and it's okay because we're brothers, and that's the way it is, right? Yeah. But when other outside factors tell you what to do, hey, you guys got to get a hit. Uh, that upsets me, right? Because I'm from—I'm the old school, right? Oh. I, I'm old school. I mean, like you—you you know. What happened to massaging a band and, you know, you know, working them, working on their career and building them up and getting a, a, a big fan base and, and then, wow, you got, oh, you, you got hits too. Awesome. But getting a fan base, you know, 
not just getting, oh, like, give me that one big hit. Trust me, um, we weren't thinking of number one hits to stay alive. In, in the back of my head, I was thinking, how are they going to drop us if we don't do something, uh, not just radio, but do have some great part of me with thinking they're going to drop us anyway if they don't believe in us. But with Herbie's help, because, you know, like we were selling out concerts and we were doing great overseas as well. I mean, we, we were doing fucking big business in Japan, uh-huh. doing really well in Europe, you know, starting to become, because of the, uh, the players, Billy Sheehan, Paul Gilbert, hello. And, um, but uh, I don't remember the album, the, the label saying anything about uh, getting a big hit or anything until uh, the third album. The second album, they were just pleasantly surprised. But you know what? They're, okay, I, I, I don't want to say anything bad about Atlantic Records because I was so excited to be on that label. And there were so many soldiers that worked that album. Not just, I mean, Herbie Herbert did a fucking fantastic job at pulling it together, you know, and, and storming the castle, if you will, to uh, get to be with you on the radio to begin with. And I, I want to tell that story. So all, so all the soldiers of Atlantic and all the people, all the suits and everything, they did their best. But the suits, the higher up, they were going to drop us. Or they were they didn't see it they didn't they didn't feel the band really and herbie went around and talked to all his radio people and you know he begged atlantic records to um to hold on to this band we're going to try to make that song to be with you they had already released like four or five singles to begin with so herbie you know uh just he beat him up at radio and it was like the 11th hour or something. I mean, the Atlantic was like, all right, let's see what you can do, but we're not going to push it. And we're not going to, we're not going to market it. We're not, we're not going to put it. We don't believe in this band. And then, I mean, not all of them, but you know, people that mattered didn't believe in it. So man, there was a, it spread like wildfire. They released to be with you. I mean, it took a while, but it spread like wildfire all over the United States. It didn't, it was like, you know, started off like in the hundreds and the eighties and the forties, and the twenties. And then eventually it got to be number one yeah. in the United States. And then, you know, we're a rock band. We don't look at billboard magazine, but somebody said, Hey man, you're number, you know, I, I found out that we were number one. I, I got a billboard magazine just to like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to cut this page out put, and, and tape it to my wall, right? And uh, I found out that we were top 10, top five, eventually number one in 15 other countries. And did Atlantic Records show champagne? Yes. Uh, with us? Absolutely. It's just the way it is, man. It's like they didn't, you know, they, they signed a lot of rock and roll bands back in um, 1989. And it was like, Herbie believed in us. And there were a few people in Atlantic Records that believed in us too. I mean, and then, you know, we were lucky to get, we were lucky to get a hit so we could stay on the label. Oh. And they could push us, push us for another 
you know, five years, five, six years. Yeah. But it wasn't, we weren't, we weren't writing. I didn't write to be with you to be. I, 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 look, I'm not gonna lie. I mean, getting on the radio, best thing ever happened to me. But I, I, that wasn't my intention. I was just trying to stay alive, man. Yeah. And that's where we're cutting it off this week with Eric. We'll pick it back up with the, uh, Best thing that ever happened to him as he was trying to survive next week. And, uh, you know, if you don't already own a copy of Lean Into It, then uh, you should be aware that back in June, they did issue a 30th anniversary deluxe edition with all kinds of cool stuff in it. So if uh, it's new to you, then uh, maybe that's the one you want to dive in and is uh, go pick yourself up that one. I will say to this day, I still love the riff that Paul came up with, with uh, Green Tinted 60s Mind. And I remember that, uh, you know, that year we were recording, I can't remember which CD we were recording, but I do remember that our producer and engineer, who was a killer guitar player, he was uh, he loved that riff too, and he could just rip that one out anytime he wanted to. And uh, it was pretty cool to hear it being done. And if you want, you can head up to ericmartin.com. Down at the bottom of that homepage, you'll get all the links there for Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and all that good stuff. So again, that is ericmartin.com. And we will pick up the story of Lean Into It next week. But for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. Thanks for listening. And as always, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insane. Still here? It's over. Go home.